The reading this morning is taken from Psalm 22. Psalm 22, verses 1 to 11. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night and am not silent. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me. For trouble is near and there is no one to help. And verses 22 to 31. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregations I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honour him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. They who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to the people yet unborn, for he has done it. For those who are visiting, we're doing a series on the sayings of the cross. And from the New Testament, there are seven altogether. If it helps as an illustration, in some churches, high churches and Catholic churches, you will see stations of the cross. I think there's 12 of those where at various stages the crucifixion is visibly portrayed and people from time to time walk and look and, and think and pray and reflect. Well, what we are doing is, from the New Testament, looking at these uh, sayings and try to take it one at a time and see what its application is for us. So we come now to this fourth of the saying, 
Um, and there from the reading, Psalm 22 and verse 1, Jesus borrows this psalm. That it's as if he is saying or thinking to himself, the only way now I can express what is happening to me is to borrow somebody else's experience, this language. And so, from Psalm 22 and verse 1, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That hymn that we've sung reflects not just good poetry and good theology, but it also reflects something that is unique among Christian people. Christians, from all backgrounds and experiences, have been concerned, let me put it like this, to stand under the cross rather than simply to understand it. Possibly one of the greatest hymns written by Isaac Watts. And he uses that word, doesn't he? When I survey... He, would, he wouldn't have start, started to say, when I analyze, because here is something so profound, so awesome, that it is beyond the thinking, though theologians and preachers and teachers have tried to plumb the depth of this saying that Jesus borrows, my God, my God, why? Some people think that to ask why is a denial of faith. Well, clearly not. So we stand, we choose to take our position, it is a choice, beneath the cross. And thereby we find ourselves judged as well, and rightly so. For this reason, that the cross is right at the very heart of the Christian faith and the Christian life. One of the earliest of all the writings of the New Testament books, Corinthians. Here is Paul, just picture him for a moment as a Christian. And he's between two cultures, the Jewish culture and the Gentile culture, or the Greek culture. And there he is in this church planting in, the, in, in Greece, in what we call Europe now. Um, Jews, he says, with their background, it's their culture, they demand signs. They were used to that, the signs with Moses, the signs that God performed in their culture. That's what they want. The Greeks, however... They look for wisdom. They're interested in philosophy. They like to argue and debate. What does he do? He doesn't engage in signs and wonders, and he doesn't engage in philosophy. He says, this is our calling. This is what we're to do. We preach Christ crucified. There's the answer. I hope you don't think that's simplistic. Of course, philosophy and signs are a factor. But what are we here for? How are we going to change lives? How are people going to be turned from their sin to salvation apart from the cross of Jesus? And from time to time here, we are often in our society, we're caught with conflicting cultures. And we need to have this uncompromising conviction that we preach Christ crucified. We follow a crucified Lord. The message of the cross, then, is central to the life and thought of the Christian faith. Can I put it to you like this negatively? That without the cross, there is no Christianity. And there certainly cannot be any Christians. The cross of Jesus produces Christians. 
Without the cross, there would be no possibility in this whole world for people to be forgiven, to be redeemed, and to rejoice and celebrate that their sins are forgiven. All that they're left with is trying to do their best and keep their fingers crossed. Let me just say three things then as we think and then we'll comment on this saying of the cross. That, that without the cross, without the cross, there is no future for the church or for Christian people. So these three things. The first is this. The worship of Christian churches is or should be cross-centered. I think you've seen that this morning with, with the hymns. And uh, some are rightly almost a lament. Were you there? It causes me. It does something to me. It makes me tremble. I, I, I think about it. The enormity of it. Indeed, think of it like this. Those of you who are baptized, Paul says this to the church, do you not know that all of us who are baptized were baptized into his death? That what you do as a Christian, you identify with Jesus who died in your place and you raise again through the resurrection. And one day you'll meet him. So as we continue to come here or to whatever place of worship, at the heart of what we do is bread that is broken, wine that symbol, symbolizes his blood shed for us. The second thing that comes out of this is this, that not only the worship of the Christian church is or should be cross-centered, but the preaching, what I'm doing now, should be cross-centered. I don't mean every sermon, but but apart from the grace of God, the cross, and the cross, we are struggling. We're on our own. Let me put it to you like this. Without the cross, the church and every preacher or leader within the church really doesn't have anything to say. Absolutely nothing. Or stay further. Well-meaning platitudes of the goodness of God are actually worthless. Unless we can point to the cross of Jesus where the proof of God's grace and power to overcome evil and sin in our world. If you've listened to the news or read the paper this week, you don't need anybody to convince you, not a preacher, that there's something wrong with our world. And there's something wrong with our country and wrong with families. And we can't always go around blaming Gordon Brown or the politics and so on. It really isn't good enough. There is something wrong in the very heart of man. Why is it that children would take the Jimmy, Jamie Bulger issue that's come out again? And what about these parents that have been put, put away for starving their children to death? Something innately wrong about that. They are the exception, thank God. Moral teaching is not just meaningless, it is positively cruel. It would be like saying today now, there's, a, there's a, a quadriplegic or a paraplegic who's been in that chair for ten years and say, stop this attention seeking, get on with your life. How cruel is that? 
to say to people to do things that they're not capable of doing apart from the grace of God. So, the cross is essential in the worship of the Christian church. It ought to be, and sadly sometimes it isn't. The preaching of the cross in churches should be Christ-centered. And lastly, the life. You see, this is the implication of that. Yes, I agree with those things. Isn't it terrible about churches and so forth? Wait a minute. Am I living the life that God in Christ Jesus has called me to? Here is the sermon on the cross. Yes, here is the worship on it. But now I'm going out into this world that's totally indifferent to a crucified Christ. What am I to do? That the life of Christian disciple is or should be cross-centered. And therefore, I'm called in the the life and witness of, of the worshiping community and within my family to do things that I don't want to do. To constantly come out of my selfish comfort zone and when asked to do things to say, yes, I'm willing to do that, but I don't want to do it. Our attitude, Paul says, as he speaks to the church at Philippi, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And that that is the very heart and essence of what we are thinking about here, borrowing this phrase from Psalm 22. Let's just look at it very quickly, just to say two things. Here is Jesus, and he shatters the silence. Just turn, will you, to uh, the account in um, Matthew 27. Just look at this. Just to put it in context. You see there was three hours of darkness over the cross. Matthew 27 and verse 46. So there, there you have it. It's page 999. There's an interesting page in the Bible for you, isn't it? 999. Matthew 27, verse 45. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. Were you there when the sun refused to shine? We've asked ourselves that question already. That's where it comes from. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama zabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here, Jesus shatters the silence with this. And literally, it actually literally means a loud scream, a haunting cry, a loud scream, like the roar of a lion. And it is not to be understood as the pathetic cry of a dying man. But what it is to be understood, as we borrow it from Psalm 22, it is the prophetic cry of a living Lord, though dying in our place. That's how it's to be understood. And we need to go back, and just very quickly, we go back like this. Do you remember in the garden when, when, when sin came into the world and started to blight human relationships, and we're not as we ought to be? And, and, and the promise then was the seed of the woman would crush Satan. The seed of the woman. woman doesn't have a seed. But the virgin birth was, was spoken of there and then later on. 
The promise, the covenant to Abraham, as Abraham goes up to this mountain, prepares an altar, is preparing to take the sacrifice of Isaac, and the voice says, God will provide himself a lamb. And this is what he's doing. Here it is. This is what it's all about. It's prophetic. Profound and prophetic. And, of course, the hymn writers. We've used some of them. Indeed, we've reflected on Charles Wesley's conversion hymn. And, and he puts it so beautifully. Tis mystery all. The immortal dies. How can the immortal die? Who can explore this strange design? Died he for me who caused his pain. Me to him to death pursued. Amazing love. How can it be? Interestingly, the three times that Jesus, out of the seven sayings on the cross, spoke to his Father, this is the only occasion where he used that formal word, God, my God, my God. And what does it represent? Now, just stay with me on this and we'll... What is time and what is eternity? The first break in that relationship with his Father... First, it marks the break of fellowship and of love. And why? Well, of course, Jesus becomes now the scapegoat, the substitute for the sin of the world. People say the descent into hell, into the abyss, is on the cross... And it comes to a climax when Jesus cries, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Totally forsaken. Utterly rejected. No milk of human kindness. No intervention of God. What does this represent then? Let's just say three things very quickly and, and you, you can focus on these if they mean more to you or less. First of all, Christ's death is global. It is global. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Here you have the impact of the cross. A great deal is said about the environment today, and rightly so. Global warming. Look in, look in Romans chapter 8, verse 22 very quickly. Page 1135. Just this verse. The impact of the cross, as Paul is speaking about the coming of the Spirit, the triumph of the Lord Jesus, and he says this, We know, verse 22, Romans 8, that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. There is something cosmic about the death of Jesus Christ. A new creation, a new order, a new beginning altogether. It finds its roots here in his death. The second thing is, and this is perhaps a bit harder to try to comprehend, that the death of Christ is penal. It is, it is a judgment. God the Father judges his Son because he's become sin and he's holy and he cannot look upon sin. Look in Second um, Corinthians, the last reference that we have, and then we'll, we'll try to go to application. Just to see this uh, as it comes um, in, the, in the New Testament. Second Corinthians 5.21 The death of Christ is penal. 
Something is happening. He is taking the judgment that we deserve upon himself. And so we read this last verse. God made him who had no sin, Jesus, to be sin. Look at the footnote. A sin offering. Okay. God at the cross made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us. Okay. So that in him, this is in the Lord Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. We might be right with God. And that's why the cross is so important, imperative in terms of living the Christian life, of being a Christian. And thirdly, the death of Christ is personal. Yes, he died for the world, but he died for me. He so loved the world, he gave his son, that whoever, put your name there. You put your name there. Don't ask your parents or your wife or your husband to do it. You do it. That whoever believes, Jeff Stedman believes in him, will not perish but have eternal life. Put it to you like this. Picture now the, the classic Easter scene. Three crosses. Jesus in, in the middle, two criminals, one either side. And as you picture that in your mind's eye now, the first one gives, gives great hope. Great hope. Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingly power. Today you'll be with me. However, there is another cross. The cynics of this world, stay there. It is there so that you shouldn't presume. If you are guilty of presumptuous sins and thinking, because I go to church, or because I'm good, or because I'm better than other people, I'm okay. You are not. You are not. There are three crosses. One Lord. One that we don't perish. Another that we don't presume. You must not presume. And you must come to Christ yourself. That's why... Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That I wouldn't be forsaken. And there is a deeper anguish yet here that the day of atonement is that final atonement. The day of transfer. As you remember when we looked at the, the, some of those feasts that the high priest takes the goat outside the, the camp of the children of Israel, and there out and out, out as far as the eye can see, never to be seen as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgression from us. Finally then, the application of this. A statement of assurance. Sin separates. It does that to human relationships all the time. And that's why forgiveness is so important. However, can people live in a marriage when somebody says, uh, I, I, I'm never at fault? Or people who refuse to say, I'm sorry. I think relations are almost impossible. None of us are perfect. And, and for sure, the Christian knows that he or she is sinful. That's why they need a saviour. Sin separates us from God and from one another. But the cross does the opposite. It reconciles us to God. And of course it reconciles us to each other. Christian people ought to be the easiest people in the world to live with if the cross is at the center of our lives. Sadly, it is not so. But what is the 
application of this? What is the assurance? Jesus was forsaken by God so that we may not be. I need not be, in fact I never will be, God forsaken because of God's grace. However, that redemption has been accomplished, now it needs to be applied in my life. And so the writers say, here is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. If, if in our worst and our weakest moments we should even think, much less say, I have no sin, I deceive myself and the truth is not in me. But if I confess my sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive my sin. Do you see it? Jesus was forsaken that we may not be. More, Jesus went through the darkness that, and many theologians will say this, that in those three hours of darkness, Jesus entered into hell itself, that we may not, that we may not. And so he has the right to say, I am the light of the world. Whoever comes to me will not live in darkness, but will have the light of life. And no religion has such credentials to say and to do that. And Jesus experienced the torment of hell itself. That we might know heaven. That we might know heaven. And so it is right. Eye hasn't seen. Ear hasn't heard. No heart conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. We know that. I feel sure it's not foolish to us. Indeed, it's the power of God because it saves us. It reconciles us to God. And I hope today, on Mothering Sunday, reconciles us to one another, even within our families and our relationships. We should never be standoffish like that. If if the cross is central to our lives, whatever the injustice is, it's the eye crossed out, isn't it? During this Lent time, people, some of you, and it's a good thing as well, uh, deny yourselves things. But the, the, the thrust of this is more than that. It is the hardest thing ever to do Deny yourself. Deny yourself. And it's only as you come to the cross of Christ will you know that. And what a strange paradox it is that the self-denial is actually the self-fulfillment as well. Love, so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. That's where we stand beneath the cross of Jesus.